The New Testament passage is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 5. It's page 811 in your pew Bible. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning. And if this is your first time at One Ancient Hope, uh, we're so glad that you're here. And before you take off, we, we do hope that we can get a chance to connect with you. And today, we continue our series in Matthew, and and actually what we find ourselves in is a series within a series, because we're going through Matthew, and the last couple weeks we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. And today in the sermon, we we come to one of the most uh, famous, one of the most iconic, one of the most well-known passages of, of Scripture, the Lord's Prayer. And before we look at, before we examine before we tune our hearts to the Lord's prayer. Let us come before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you you invite us to prayer. Thank you that you give us prayers to pray. And thank you most of all that we can come before you, before our Heavenly Father, because of the work of Jesus Christ. And as we look at this prayer, Father, We pray that you would give us eyes to see what it means to be a child of God who can approach you, approach you as a loving father, always and only because of the work of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, today, as well as the last few weeks, we've been in the section of the Sermon on the Mount where where Jesus is giving us practices, and he's giving us practices, as we've talked about, that direct us to, to the good life, that direct us to happiness, that direct us to the flourishing that God calls us to. And here, specifically, Jesus gives us the practices of prayer. And, and throughout this, this series on the Sermon on the Mount, we've, we've appealed quite a bit to the philosopher Alistair Dermacintyre. And he actually says a lot about practices, things that are very helpful when we think about prayer. McIntyre says that, that practices that direct us to the good life, well, these are practices that first and foremost seek 
the goods that we might call internal or inherent or natural to the practice itself. McIntyre gives the example of, of playing chess. Perhaps you decide to become uh, a famous chess player to make money. And money isn't a bad thing. And in fact, if you plan to practice chess for hours and hours on end, well, then you're likely going to need to make money in order to, make, uh, to keep that practice going. But McIntyre says if the main reason you're playing chess is in order to make money, well, <clears throat> you're not going to become a truly virtuous chess player. Because to be a truly virtuous chess player, you have to play chess first and foremost because you love the game, because you love playing chess. However, if the main reason you're playing chess is, is to get something else, something that's not naturally connected with the game of chess, something like money, McIntyre points out that among other things, for instance, you have no reason not to cheat. It's not the game itself that you love, you just want to win and you want to win in order to make more money. And this is actually directly connected to the practice of prayer. There's absolutely a place for public prayer, and here in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus does tell us to pray to our Father, not just my Father. And that's because the whole church, the whole communion of saints is in view. But in this passage, Jesus directs us specifically to the importance of praying in secret. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. If you do something in secret, the only reason you're doing it is because you love to do that thing. No one else knows about it. No one else knows whether or not you're actually doing it. If you pray in secret, you're doing it because you love or are seeking to love to pray. Only if you long with fellowship for God and believe that God is actually active in the world, only then will you pray in secret. However, if you don't desire fellowship with God, if you don't actually think that God is active in the world, you will not pray. There's no reason to. And perhaps that's why you struggle with prayer. And I, I'm speaking more to myself here than anyone else. But if you do pray, you seek to be with your Heavenly Father. You love and you seek God, and so you seek to learn to speak to God as one who loves and seeks Him, which is what prayer is. To rightly play chess, you have to play because you love the game of chess, and to rightly pray, you have to pray because you love your Father in heaven. And in this passage, Christ gives us the paradigm practice of prayer. The paradigm practice for learning how to love and to trust God and come before him and speak to our heavenly Father in prayer. And towards that end, I, I, I want to look at the passage under three headings. Hallowed speech, loving speech, and childlike speech. Let's start first with hallowed speech. Christ introduces the prayer with the following instructions. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. 
New Testament scholar Jonathan Pennington, he actually points to an example of, of these kinds of Gentile prayers that we find in the Bible. In fact, it's an example of people who should be following God actually praying to a pagan deity. It's the account of Elijah and the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. If you're familiar with that account, Elijah, he wants to show the falseness of the god Baal. He wants to demonstrate Baal's inability to consume this offering. However, the the prophets of, of Baal, they are determined to get the attention of this false god, and they babble for hours on end, even going as far as to cutting themselves and wounding themselves. They think this will get Baal's attention. This will show him their devotion. They think they need to persuade him to action. And so what many babbling words show, as with the prophets of Baal, is belief in a God who is hesitant to answer our prayer. They believe in a God who is miserly and begrudging with his blessing, a God who has to be persuaded. But our Father in heaven, he is not like Baal. Christ tells us, Do not be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. And Pennington is is, is again helpful here. He explains, the ultimate reason Jesus' followers are not supposed to pray like the babbling Gentiles is because they have a heavenly father who knows their needs before they even present them. And because God is our great and gracious father, a Christian, as Pennington tells us, does not need to try to persuade or manipulate a reluctant God. God is our Father. He loves us. He doesn't need to be persuaded. He's not hesitant to do good. We don't need to convince God. We simply need to cry to Him. And this directs us to an important truth. Who you pray to conditions and determines how you pray. The who of prayer comes before the how of prayer. And we see this in in regular life. The the person we're talking to, that actually changes the way that we speak. Think about the difference with which you present yourself when you're in a job interview or something like that compared to the way that you speak to a loving friend, a loving parent, a loving family member. And so, before anything else, Christ wants us to know who we're praying to. Christ wants us to know that we are praying to our Heavenly Father, who knows every one of our needs, who delights to bring good into our lives, who is not hesitant or begrudging in meeting our needs. In fact, we are praying to the God who knows our needs more than we could ever express. And he is the God who wants good for our lives more than we ourselves want that good for us. And because this is so, the first petition of the Lord's Prayer tells us, hallowed be your name. Hallowed speech is speech that recognizes and rejoices in who God is. It's speech that loves, loves, adores, and glorifies God. To hallow means to to sanctify, to to purify, to make holy. And we're here praying that God would, would make his name holy. But we have to be careful because God is holy in and of himself and God's name is holy. 
The holy God and the holy name of God do not need us in order to be holy. Instead, when we pray that God's name would be holy, we are praying that it would be used rightly, that God's name would be used in a way that sanctifies and purifies both us and others. Consider a negative example. A case of God's name not being hallowed, not being used in a holy, sanctifying, sanctifying and purifying way. Consider the case of Jonah. After Jonah comes to the city of Nineveh to proclaim the judgment of God upon it, the people of Nineveh repent, and and they do so with deep sincerity and deep sorrow, and God forgives them. And this forgiveness absolutely enrages Jonah, and this brings us to the beginning of chapter 4 of Jonah, where we find the following scene. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I know, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What is Jonah doing here? Well, he's essentially quoting Exodus 34, 6, and 7. God's revelation, God's disclosure of his good and gracious and merciful and forgiving character to Moses. Jonah's quoting God's own revealing of his name back to God. But is Jonah hallowing it? Is he using it rightly? Absolutely not. Jonah is using God's declaration of himself to condemn God. It's because God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger that Jonah is absolutely furious. It's because of who God has revealed himself to be that Jonah fled from God in the first place. And so Jonah uses the very words of God to attack God. Clearly, this is misusing God's name. Words that should be used to praise God are being used to condemn and indict and attack God. And we might not think of words as something that we use, but the meaning of words, it lies in their use. This was actually a key point of of the later philosophy of of one of the most fascinating, brilliant, and and bizarre figures of the, the 20th century, Ludwig Wittgenstein. At one point, he writes the following. There are certain criteria in a man's behavior for his not understanding a word, that it means nothing to him, that he can do nothing with it. Wittgenstein tells us that if you cannot rightly use words in actual situations, well, you don't understand them. Think about it like this. Think of two students who are using, or sorry, who are learning a new language. One student has memorized thousands of, of flashcards but the student isn't actually able to use any of those words in any real-life situations that they find in the actual culture. But then think of another student, a student who has actually memorized far fewer words, but can actually use the words that they've learned in actual situations in the new culture, situations ranging from going to the grocery store or sitting down with a, uh, with a friend over coffee. The first student may have memorized more words, but this student, unlike the second, can't actually use those words. And so by Wittgenstein's standards, this student doesn't actually understand 
these words. Well, in the same way, Jonah cannot use Exodus 34 to praise God, to foster love for God in the hearts of himself and others. Jonah can't use Exodus 34 to hallow God's name, to use it rightly, and so he doesn't actually understand it. And Wittgenstein's standard of understanding is actually echoed by the ancient African bishop Augustine. Augustine says the following, Anyone who thinks that he has understood the divine scriptures or any part of them, but cannot, by his understanding, build up the double love of God and neighbor, has not yet succeeded in understanding them. The purpose of scripture is to make us love God and neighbor. And if you can't use scripture for this purpose, you have not used it rightly. And if you can't use it rightly, Augustine and Wittgenstein are telling us you don't understand it. Again, consider Jonah. He uses Exodus 34 to condemn God because he hates God's gracious character and he hates his Ninevite neighbors. And so Jonah absolutely does not truly understand Exodus 34. And we have to ask ourselves, are we using Scripture rightly? Are we praying the Scriptures so that we would use God's name to make ourselves and others holy? Are the words of Scripture sanctifying us and causing us to love God and neighbor more? If not, it's like using a rock for a meal or, or using a laptop computer as a doorstop. We're not using Scripture rightly. We're not using it for what it's actually for. And this is why every day we have to pray, Father, teach us to hallow your name. Teach us to use every word, our every word, not just the words in the Bible, but every word that we speak. Let us use them to build up our love for you and our love for our neighbor, because like every part of creation, the purpose of the words we speak are meant to be directed to the love of God. So think about your words. Ask others about the way that you use your words. Ask your friends closest to you how you use your words. If you're married, ask your spouse how you use your words. If you're a parent, sincerely ask your children how you use your words. And this brings us to another petition of the Lord's Prayer, and, and we're going to skip over a few here, but we'll come back to them. We're going to go to the line, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And the basic assumption here is that the Christian will be forgiving others and will be doing so regularly. And that makes sense. If our restored relationship with God rests on the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ, that same forgiving mercy that so enraged Jonah, then yes, we would naturally be a people who are forgiving. And if we're not forgiving, if we're not forgiving others, we've missed the whole point of the gospel. Christ is telling us that if we are not a people who forgives, then all signs point to the fact that we ourselves have not opened our hearts and received the gracious forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. And I say this with trepidation, but if you do not forgive, Christ is telling us you likely have not received the gracious forgiveness of God. And we cannot underestimate the importance of forgiveness and what it means to lose a forgiving God, to lose that very God that Jonah hated. For instance, 
literature professor, writer, and, and sort of all-around public sage, Alan Jacobs, he warns us about what happens when we lose the Christian God. Because when we lose the Christian God, we lose the God who forgives. And when we lose the God who forgives, Jacobs tells us we lose a society that forgives. Jacobs writes the following, when a society rejects the Christian account of who we are, it doesn't become less moralistic, but far more so. Because it retains an inchoate sense of justice, but has no means of offering and receiving forgiveness. The great moral crisis of our time is not, as many of my fellow Christians believe, sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. And this, of course, is the case for Jonah. Jonah doesn't think he needs a forgiving God because Jonah doesn't think he actually needs forgiveness. The God of forgiveness would mean that he and the Ninevites need the same divine grace and mercy. And this humbling truth has no place in a vindictive approach to the world that separates into good people, my group, and bad people, the other group. And as Jacobs points out, this is actually the great moral crisis of our time, one that reaches across all sections of our society. A moralistic vindictiveness that rejects forgiveness and pleases political and ideological positions with the hardest of hearts. But again, God's forgiveness is basic. And we don't forgive others in order to earn God's forgiveness. Again, remember Jonah. God is so forgiving that it's shocking. God is so forgiving that it's offensive to our common sensibilities. God does not forgive grudgingly. He delights to forgive. Again, God knows our needs, and he has given us his full attention. And this petition, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven others, well, this petition is a rushing river of forgiveness pouring out upon a dry and parched desert of vindictiveness. And just as we must use to learn God's name rightly, so also must we learn to forgive, which is another way that we hallow the name of God. When we speak forgiveness, we're reminded that there is such a thing as forgiveness. John Calvin, he, he puts it like this when commenting upon this line in the Lord's Prayer. He says, By this word, the Lord intended partly to comfort the weakness of our faith, for he has added this sign to assure us that he has granted forgiveness of sins to us, just as surely as we are aware of having forgiven others. And so interestingly, Calvin actually describes forgiveness in, in terms that are almost sacramental. Consider the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Here, God gives us a meal. He gives us bread and wine so that we can taste and eat and drink the assurance of Christ's forgiveness. And this feeding on the bread and the wine is at the same time a feeding of our souls. And Calvin uses what seems to be sacramental language to describe forgiveness. Without such things as food and drink, God could not feed our souls by the eating and drinking of the elements in the Lord's Supper. And without such a thing as forgiveness among our neighbors, we could not grasp the offer of forgiveness that God gives and applies to us in Jesus Christ. But when we forgive, Calvin tells us, we see a sign worked out in our own lives that communicates to us the very forgiveness of Christ. 
And so do you wrestle with trusting that God has actually forgiven you? Well, Calvin would tell you this, go and forgive others so that you can better taste and drink and know the reality of forgiveness. Come and experience the sign, the sign of human forgiveness that points to and participates in the great forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And never cease to ask for God's forgiveness because God will never withhold it. If we who are morally vindictive know how to forgive, how much more so our good and gracious Father in heaven? And this brings us to our second point, loving speech. Our speech must be loving. Again, if we can't use the words of Scripture, if we can't use our own words to love God and neighbor, we can't truly understand Scripture and we cannot hallow God's name. And this brings us to a petition that we earlier passed over. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we hear the word kingdom, we, we might tend to think of a kingdom of this or that place, the kingdom of this or that country. We might think of kingdom as a location, but the Greek word here, while it includes that, it primarily speaks of a king's reign, of a king's rule. It speaks of an action or an activity. And so when we pray, your will, sorry, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're praying for God to act. We're praying for God to reign and rule over this world just as he rules and reigns in heaven. And this looks forward to Revelation 21 when we see heaven coming down to earth, when the perfect reign of God, free from sin, free from corruption, free from evil, comes down to this earth. And so to pray, your kingdom come, ask God that he would increase his reign and rule upon this earth, upon each and every one of our circumstances, and within the furthest reaches of our heart. But this means that we must submit to the will of God. And we have to be careful here, because there's a dangerous way to think about this. There can be a tendency that has often infiltrated Christianity to see submission to God's will as a kind of self-negation that we must let go of what humans should most deeply want and desire so that we can obey God. For instance, we tend to think that the most virtuous person is one who does a good deed, not because they desire to do that deed, but precisely because they don't desire and they don't want to do that deed. We tend to equate virtues and ethics and goodness not with doing what we want, we think that the most virtuous person is the person that goes against their desires. And then we import this notion into Christianity. We think that the truly hallowed Christian is the one who must reject their deepest desires in order to follow God. But this would mean that obeying God in our deepest desires, our happiness, our flourishing, well, it's at best unconnected, and at worst, diametrically opposed to the good life that God calls us to. In that case, to follow God would not be learning to be more yourself, but to be less yourself. It would be learning to squash your desires. We would not be learning to hallow ourselves, but learning to hollow ourselves, to become a kind of puppet or mere instrument that God uses. And that would mean that grace, that God's saving, 
restoring and perfecting work undoes who we are. That would mean that grace destroys nature. But it's been the long-held position of the Christian tradition that grace perfects nature. God's grace does not negate who we are, but it makes us become who God intends us to be. God's grace grows and matures us from the acorn to the oak. It makes us more fully human, more fully ourselves. It makes us what God intends us to be. And that means that the more God acts in us, the more we ourselves act. God's action and God's agency, they're not in competition with us, with our action and agency. Our relationship with God is not a relationship of violence and competition. Consider an analogy. The more that the sun shines on a sapling, the more that a sapling grows and matures and acts into an oak. The sun does not compete or work against the actions of the sapling. The more the sun acts on the sapling, the more the sapling acts. And the same is true for God's grace. The more that God's grace shines upon us, the more we act and grow into what God intends us to be. The more the sun acts, the more the sapling acts. The more God acts, the more we act. And as we've said throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Christ is teaching about ethics, and ethics is about happiness, the good life, the life that God calls us to. And so to pray, your will be done, is not to pray that God's will be done and my will be squashed. Rather, it's to pray that God's will be done and that the hardness of our own hearts would melt away so that we can love and desire the great and grand things that God has called us to as his human creatures. It's to ask that God's will would increase so that we might receive happiness, the flourishing that God longs to give us. This is God's will for us. It's to pray that God would make us more, not less ourselves. It's to realize that God's will for us and our flourishing and happiness, they are one in the same thing. For instance, if we serve our neighbor by inviting our neighbor over for a meal, then yes, we are following the command of God, and this will make you happier. And in fact, the happier it makes you to serve your neighbor, the more virtuous that action is, because you're becoming what God intends you to be, one who delights in the good. To say as Augustine would put it, we are to love loving our neighbor. The fully ethical person and the fully flourishing person, they just are the same person. And this is our future when heaven comes down to earth, when God's will is fully done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is not a crushing boulder. It's the warm and beautiful light of the sun. And if we reject God's will, if we shut ourselves off from that warm and beautiful light, well, our only other option is to wither and to ever seek a flourishing and happiness for all eternity that we will never, ever find. Again, he's our father. He loves you, and you are his child, and for that reason, he seeks your good. So in seeking your good, seek his will. And this brings us to the petition, give us this day our daily bread. In this, we recognize the dependence upon God that we have, that he is the giver of all good gifts. 
And this petition is meant to foster gratefulness to God in our hearts. In terms of worldly pleasures, perhaps God has given you much. Perhaps God has given you little. But in either case, all of these things will be as nothing if they are not received with gratitude. The poet and, and pastor George Herbert, he, he puts this well. In one of his poems, he says, Thou that has given me so much, give one thing more, a grateful heart. Without a grateful heart, nothing that God gives us will ever be enough. Without a grateful heart, our greed will become a kind of black hole that no amount of goods will ever fill. But to pray daily that God would meet our needs is to remember that we are always the receiver and God is always the giver. And daily bread here is a reference to God feeding daily the Israelites in the wilderness with bread from heaven, feeding them with manna. And here Christ is reminding us of that basic truth that everything is manna. Everything. Everything is a gift from our good and gracious Father. Everything we have is from heaven. And we should let this truth humble us, let it fill us with childlike gratitude for everything that we have. And yes, we are called to steward well all that God has given to us, but we can't forget that all that we steward is itself a gift. And there's more here. When we forget that everything is a gift, we become greedy and gluttonous. We, we try to get as much as we possibly can. But to gather far too much bread or far too much of any resource is to lose the ability to appreciate the sweet and simple taste of a warm loaf. It's to lose the ability to appreciate the handiwork of our best sweater. It's to lose the ability to slow down and actually read and enjoy all the books we already have. It's to lose the ability to appreciate the dignified and steady job that we are already working. When we are greedy and gluttonous for more, we lose the ability to enjoy the very things that we desire. Yes, we may have set a fine banquet for ourselves, but we come to find that we have lost our sense of taste. When we overconsume we under-enjoy. As author and, and farmer Wendell Berry warns us, gluttony, or sorry, not, gluttony is not sinful merely because it consumes too much and leaves too little for others. It is also sinful because it belittles what it consumes and belittles the source. When we over-consume, we under-enjoy. The more we have, the less we appreciate the good gifts that God has already given to us. Each is, uh, each is immediately forgotten in a flurry of the next trip to the mall or the next click on Amazon. We lose the ability to truly taste, to truly appreciate our daily bread. And to belittle this gift is to belittle the giver, God himself. Yes, Lord, give us this day our daily bread and help us to taste it with slow, focused, and grateful attention. Which brings us to our third and final point, childlike speech. The prayer closes with a petition and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And there's 
a lot here in any one of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer could themselves be an entire sermon, let alone packing them all into one sermon. But at present, with respect to this particular petition, I want to point out, that the, I want to point out the trust that it requires. It's the trust of a child for their father. Father, orchestrate my moments, my days, my months, my years, my life. Do so as you see fit. You may lead me into places that I would rather not go, but let me trust and know that each place you take me, that it's for my ultimate good to conform me into the image of my dear older brother, Christ. And in this petition, we find the prayer that we would relate to God, the Father, as does his Son, Jesus Christ. It's a prayer that we would relate to the God of the whole universe as our very Father. And this should astonish us, and this should amaze us, that God invites us to call him Father. And this takes us back to where we began. Remember that throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we've looked at how Matthew presents Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, as the climax, all the culmination of all that has come before, as the surprising and unexpected, but upon reflection, the only possible consummation of God's great story. And we see this here in Christ's invitation to call upon God as our Father, We do see this dynamic in the Old Testament, but rarely and with reservation and largely functioning in a metaphorical sense. As biblical scholar Wesley Hill writes of this dynamic, there remains throughout the Old Testament a certain reserve about the father metaphor for God. There are nearly half a million words in the Hebrew Bible, yet God is only portrayed as a father some 15 times. It's almost as if these rare instances of the God of Israel being called or calling himself Father are placeholders, awaiting some unforeseen future future revelation that will cause them to take on a new resonance. And that unforeseen future revelation is Christ Jesus, the eternal Son of God, becoming human. It's Christ sharing his sonship and the fatherhood of God with us, It's Christ making us true children of God, the Father. But this presents us with an astonishing dynamic, and we see that here in the prayer that Christ teaches us to pray. This prayer that Christ prays with his people, he also prays himself. As Christ leads his people in prayer, he prays as only he can properly pray. Christ calls upon God as his own Father, yet he does so as our Father in heaven, sharing the relationship to the Father that he has with all of those united to him by faith. But Christ also does something else. Remember that Christ is praying and prays, forgive us our debts. Well, what's going on? How can Christ speak of our debts? Well, these debts are the punishment that we deserve for all the ways that we failed to love God, but Christ has never failed in this way. In his human nature, every second of his human life, he loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved his neighbor as himself. Christ always and ever submitted himself to the will of God, even receiving the death on the cross. These are not his debts. These debts are our debts. 
Yet Christ invites us to pray, forgive us our debts. Yes, Christ invites us to pray as only he deserves, but he also prays as only we deserve. So what is Christ doing? Well, to answer this question, we have to look at another place where he speaks as only we deserve to speak. On the cross, Christ quotes Psalm 22, crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ not only speaks as we should speak here, but we alone, not Christ, deserve to be forsaken by God. But Christ experiences this punishment for us. He experiences the wrath of God according to his human nature. Why can he pray that we be forgiven our debts in the Lord's Prayer? Because Christ has taken this debt of sin upon himself. He prays what only we should pray and experiences what only we should experience. And so he prays with us as us. He prays in our very place. He takes our sin in our very voice upon himself and gives us the status of his perfect human life and righteousness. He experiences and prays what only we should. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we can pray what only he should, our Father who is in heaven, and experience the deep joy and delight of the Father. By reconciling us to the Father through his perfect life and death, Christ makes us true children of God. And he shows us how to address God as the loving Father that he is. And so what is the Father's will that we are called to submit to and to receive? It's this. Receive Christ by faith and become my child. And so learn to speak and trust like a child who rests in the riches of their good and gracious Father. And so, for that reason, pray. You already have your loving Father's attention. He already knows your needs and delights to meet them. Pray and so speak to your heavenly Father according to what Christ has already made you, a beloved child. Speak as this beloved child and so hallow the Father's name. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that we can come and address you as Father. We thank you that because of the work of Christ, we are your true children. Help us to learn the truth of that evermore, to rest in that, to trust in that, and to speak to you just as does a child to a loving father. In Christ's name we pray, amen.